it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Labyrinth for our inaugural show of 2018. I'm Fletcher Walton. I'm joined as ever by Luke Littleboy as we continue Luke's Absidarian Odyssey with As Good As It Gets. And it's a double header. We're pairing that with James Cameron's Titanic. Both films 20 years old, both films well represented at the Academy Awards of March in 1998. Uh, Titanic was, uh, well, arrived on our shores. I shouldn't say it like that, should I? (laughs) But uh, (laughs) arrived on our shores. Yeah. Titanic beached with us on the 23rd of January of 1998, although the US had got it just before Christmas. As good as it gets came a lot later, that was March, March 13th of 98, and again, in America they got it Christmas Day. I'm lucky enough to have actually been to a Christmas Day screening in the States. I saw Inside Lewin Davis for the one and only time. That's our schedule today. Two big winners at the Academy Awards. The biggest film of all time, unless it's Avatar now, certainly it was at the time, the biggest director of all time, up against... James L. Brooks, Helen Hunt, and Jack Nicholson. Luke, where shall we begin? Oh, that's a good one. I think Avatar, by the way, is now the greatest film all time. Of, uh, the greatest? The highest earning film of all time. Uh, it's some way from being the greatest film of all time, I hasten to add. Yeah. But uh, it's, a, it's a good question uh, because, adjusted for inflation, I don't have the figures in front of me, I, I don't know if Avatar beats titanic adjusted for inflation not least because they re-released titanic in 3d and it it had a very successful run in 3d as well yeah Uh, although i believe ultimately if you adjust everything for inflation and purely the amount of bums sitting on seats to watch feature films gone with the wind is the all-time all-time daddy yeah i think with the original star wars in in the top five somewhere but yeah uh okay um but shall we start with as good as it gets it was uh Back yeah, in November, let's bury the lead. Back in November, you and I wanted to talk about this. Produced, uh, directed, and I guess re- written or rewritten by James L. Brooks, uh, who uh, many people will know uh, through Simpsons fame, of course, one of the one of the producers of The Simpsons, uh, who actually hired Matt Groening himself uh, back when he was working on the Tracy Ullman show to create the create an animated series. So um, we all know James L. Brooks gave The Simpsons its heart. And uh, as good as it gets, starring Jack Nicholson as Melvin, Helen Hunt, Carol, uh, and uh, Greg Kinnear as uh, Simon, who's a gay artist and uh, and um, next door neighbour to Jack Nicholson's character Melvin, is a film with uh, with an awful lot of heart. And I try and remember one one of the things I do with my DVD is I always try and cast my mind back to why. I bought this DVD. Why did I go into the shops? Yeah, why did you? And buy it on DVD. Uh, you know what? As a kid growing up, I was a big Jack Nicholson fan. We haven't got to the B's in my DVD A to Z yet, Fletch, but of course, it won't escape your notice that Tim Burton's Batman from 1989 is in there. And as a little kid, Jack Nicholson as the Joker was uh, made a really big impression on me. And my dad really liked him from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and thought that Jack Nicholson's Joker was... Um, 
was something else, a really, really great performance. And I think that left a real impression on me as a kid. So over the years, I would go backwards to the likes of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, etc., and, and, and try and, um, try and uh, uh, just discover a lot more of his films. And I think As Good As It Gets is one of those films in 1997, like you say, that I probably saw advertised an awful lot in the cinema, but I was still wasting my time going to see the likes of The Lost World, Jurassic Park, and the Star Wars Special <laughs> Editions because I was uh, like eight years old uh, or whatever. Uh, actually, no, I would have been, what, nine, ten, nine, ten years old. So I'll, I'll try and be more accurate. But yeah, as good as it gets, the film that I then subsequently saw on TV, obviously a bunch of times. But for some reason, I I felt compelled enough to go out and, and buy it on DVD and relive all two and a half hours of uh, of Melvin's Odyssey. And you know, when we were kicking off my DVD A to Z way back when, we did After Hours by Martin Scorsese, and yeah. you sort of said, you know what, Luke, I think After Hours is a really good example of one of my favourite sub-genres of cinema, One Crazy Night. And I propose to you now, Fletch, does As Good As It Gets fit into a sub-genre of uh, One Crazy Journey? Uh, or, I guess you'd just say road trip, right? Road trip movie. Films where people get in a vehicle, get in a car, go on a road trip, uh, and then they're changed by the end of it. Like every animated film, I, f- I think of the past fifteen years oh, does yeah. this has the same plot where everyone has to go on a, a road trip journey of some description. As good as it gets is, is one where you're kind of you're going along minding your own business. Melvin uh, Jack Nicholson's character has OCD uh, he, as as well as I'm sure many other um, uh, conditions that that I'm not fully versed in or aware of. Uh, he's completely alienated himself from his neighbours in his apartment building in New York. Uh, including, including Greg Kinnear's character, Simon. Um, he has to eat at the same place for breakfast every single day, using plastic cutlery no less as well, because he couldn't possibly have the cutlery uh, from the restaurant that other people have been using, of course, due to cleanliness or whatever. Helen Hunt is his, um, his waitress, uh, who he insists serves him every single day. Uh, but of course, his neighbour... Simon is violently assaulted because uh, he's a painter. And whilst he's painting in his apartment uh, a model, uh, he's basically been set up and he's, he's assaulted and robbed. So Melvin is then hilariously forced to look after Simon's dog, uh, Vidal. And uh, Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr. very violently forces Melvin to, uh, to, to, to look after the dog, Vidal. So... Um, here we are minding our own business with these characters. We're getting used to this neighbourhood in New York. We're getting used to Helen Hunt's waitress character. And uh, I'm really enjoying it. But then, of course, we get two-thirds into this two-and-a-half-hour two, two odyssey. But the characters all get into a car <laughs> and uh, then go on a life-changing journey. So I don't know, Fletch. Does road trip film, is that a genre in itself? Yeah, certainly. I think that as good as it gets would fit outside of that. I found its use of the road trip quite cynical and pragmatic. It it felt as though Brooks had taken Andrus's script and got to a point and thought, I need to make these characters do something. I need some kind of uh, resolution. I need to a catalyst for various revelations and interactions. Bollocks to it. I'll put them in a car and see what happens. Mm. So I, I, found, I found it kind of lacking because it comes so late as well and um, very little need for it. Mm. And within the context of the film, it's important for Greg Kinnear's character to be faced with the possibility of revisiting his 
parents that they're, they're driving down there to um where are, they, are they driving to maryland yeah that rings a bell and they've got to get basic because of his he's assaulted because he's an artist he loses his income essentially because he, he yeah. can't work and he's he's beat up so bad so he has to go back to his hometown and and try and confront his parents who you never see i think it's all over the phone isn't it yeah uh, they, they do try and set up you say it comes across um it comes along the road trip comes along quite suddenly and it does they do try to set it up uh, in the first kind of third you've got cuba gooding jr saying oh you probably should go talk to your parents uh at some point but but you're right it does feel like a, a little bit of a surprise as, and especially as toy melvin has to has to be the one to drive him there yeah there didn't feel to be anything at stake now as we've explained it to the listeners they might think that this film would uh, reach its climax with a, a tearful reconciliation between estranged parents and gay son. We don't go anywhere near that. That's dispensed with in just a phone call. Upon arriving near Baltimore, he calls to say that he'll be in town. And then a few scenes later, he tells him, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm cured in a way. I'd, I, I can live my life and find satisfaction and generate self-esteem without... The, the input of my parents and the, the whole film doesn't it doesn't feel like there's much payoff in the film there was a lot of reasons why I didn't connect very well with this film and I'd realized that I hadn't seen it before I think I'd seen 20 or 30 minutes when I was a kid oh so you, well, this was your first time watching it in, in, in your it turns out yeah now there's a whole tranche of films uh, so for instance off the top of my head The Negotiator which came out in about 1998 I know that I've seen it there's very little that I remember about it and I thought As Good As It Gets was one of those films that I saw when I was 14, 15 or 16 and saw only once or had on in the background a couple of times and that I just didn't engage with it. But I think I hadn't seen it properly at all. It was a, a, a very a starkly different f- cinematic grammar than what I'm used to. Mm. Right, so to a modern audience, right... So much of the film was shot in close-up and medium close-up, and it made it feel really cramped. God, you're always about this. What... You, you, you talk about this a lot with the <laughs> Steven Spielberg's first Jurassic Park movie, don't you? You, you can't get... No, that's true. Yeah. That's true, and it, it, it might have been a convention of 90s cinema, because you and I and the listeners will know that we may not be able to put our finger on it and put a name to it because we don't have the expertise in cinematography, but... When a film's been shot in the 90s, you know it. You can immediately identify, and it's because it, it's not quite in soft focus, but there is a hazy gloss across the film. There is. That's true of As Good As It Gets. I checked. The DP is John Bailey. He's quite respected. It's a fine pedigree. I didn't like his work in this. He's worked mainly on uh, comedies. More recently, some right ropey stuff like Licence to Wed, which I saw at the cinema with Bannum and Westy. Robin Williams is a priest who insists that he get to know John Krasinski, and I think it's Mandy Moore. Mm. So that uh, and divine secrets of the Yaya sisterhood and sisterhood of the traveling pants. This DP has worked mainly on very forgettable comedies, but in the past has done decent work. For instance, Groundhog Day. Okay. So when somebody has that in their uh, oeuvre, you, <laughs> I do love returning to that word, yeah, I in their you filmography, do. you can't really just toss it off. And he's worked consistently, consistently with Kasdan as well, and Kasdan cameos in this film. Um, but it was, yeah, so cramped. And so while watching it for the first hour, I thought, OK, maybe when they finally get on this road trip and the world opens up for Melvin, it will open up for the audience as well. And there might have been a bit of that. I'm willing to think there might have been a bit of that. But at the same time, I've, that might be giving John Bailey too much credit. 
uh, and the conversational scenes as well. I found them very unengaging because it felt like line readings. It felt that there were never ever really two participants in the conversation. Rather, it was, for instance, Helen Hunt giving a line and then in an entirely separate recording, Harold Ramis giving the response to that line. Mm. Um, And odd editing decisions as well. Nothing that drew me into the film. And that so that created a distance for me from the beginning. And we could say that it was it's a matter of 90s cinematography, the look of it, but also the editing and and the the shot selection, I suppose. And it as I say, it opens up a little bit when they're on this road trip, but felt so enclosed. Mm. I didn't get a feel for the neighbourhood, even when Jack is avoiding the cracks in the pavement. And moving between people. Don't touch, don't touch. <laughs> He's taking the dog out for a walk. It felt... I never saw the entire neighbourhood. Mm. So, I was in tr- uh, kind of... You, I was you, you don't do... You, you only see the apartment block and uh, the restaurant, I guess. And, and there's no there's not a great sense of geography as to where one is in relation to the other. Yeah. But he is... And then, he, he doesn't like going out of his house. That is, that's the point, right? He's a recluse. I should say that he's, yeah. he's a novelist. And he barely... He you know, barely wants to engage with the world. So, so he, he'll write... And I, isn't it implied that although a, a good writer, he's sort of a... Not dime store novelist but he, he it seems that he churns out a lot of quite mass market oh, yeah, stuff and it, it, it yeah the equivalent of a mills and boone yeah that's what he's churning yeah. out so he can he's got away with words but he doesn't actually want to engage with the world in any way and he go he doesn't go anywhere else other than the restaurant aside from his publisher who he goes to at one point and someone tries to engage him there the receptionist or whoever says oh i just really like your books and he completely insults her because it's, it's all he he's able to do so um yeah, yeah. His great line of uh, Julie Benz of Buffy fame asks, "How do you write such accurate women?" And he says, "I think of a man, and I take away reason and accountability." <laughs> and the, the, this the film is peppered with we could call them Jackisms, I suppose. Yeah. And I know what they were going for, but with twenty years remove, I think we're just used to Will Ferrell. Mm. Now, Anch- Anchorman came only six or seven years after As Good as It Gets. And a picture like Anchorman, a Will Ferrell picture, will include two dozen Bon Watts mm. and witticisms. Uh, and uh, so much of comedy over this century has been, uh, has foregrounded characters like Melvin Udall, mm. but in a way made them either a more obnoxious anti hero. Because this is the funny thing looking at the poster even for the film. And it says, uh, brace yourself for Melvin. Yeah. So it's really pushing it as though you're not going to believe this guy. He's so impolite. Yeah. (laughs) And he's got all of these ticks. He's just terrible to be around. And you've never seen anything like it. But it rather feels like a film that's marketed to parents in that way. Uh, You know, taboos are hardly broken now. He gives a hard time to the gay neighbour. But it's all rather genteel. Mm-hmm. And because it's, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I wonder, in terms of the style, I know that um, when I was doing my research, um, there's an interview with James L. Brooks in the New York Times from '97, and uh, it, it talks about how he was constantly experimenting and reshooting and re-editing the film. 
uh, and he changed the ending around five times, allowed oh, allowing gosh. allowing the actors to improvise the film's tone. Now the article is obviously in high praise of this because the film was well was well regarded at the time, cleaned up, did very yeah. well at the Oscars. So I suppose people were thinking. You said that the dialogue seemed a little stilted or was cut together with two different performances. It may very well have been that way, but I think at the time people felt like this was quite a progressive and uh, felt like quite a real life, a, a real life, uh, uh, a bit of a slice of life. And uh, I think that people liked that because one thing that I do miss these days, and and you, you'll probably list three films now and correct me uh, for being for being wrong but uh, I, I miss films where the cast is maybe a, a bit older um, I mean this is a romantic yeah. comedy ultimately and it's two slightly older people whereas a lot of um, actually no I, I suppose I'm I suppose I'm wrong I suppose you probably could Luke, listen to romantic comedy best exotic marigold hotel yeah, one there we go yeah best exotic <laughs> marigold hotel two yeah I suppose best exotic marigold hotel with a vengeance yeah, I suppose that's true. Um, no, no, I, I, I think it's. Um, I think you're right. It's a love story between a couple of older, broken people. If it were a more serious indie, indie drama, then it might have gone over a bit better with me. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, a film that does that quite well is Stanley and Iris. I can't remember the director, but it's Jane Fonda and Robert De Niro, and uh, forging a love story when they're already people in their late 40s and Frankie and Johnny does a little bit of that as well and it's it's nice to see older people uh, uh, in a in a film and um, I liked the lead performances so I, I approached it with a critical eye Jack Nicholson fine actually good Greg Kinnear was decent as well Helen Hunt was great also. She, she's I think she great. was really good. Yeah, I think she's really, really lovely. I, I, I like the, love the scene where, <laughs> uh, which is the big Oscar scene, really, when she breaks down in front of her mother. It says her mother's constantly encouraged, because I should say that Helen Hunt's character has um, a very ill son. She denies herself a lot of simple pleasures in life, such as dating or whatever, or has trouble with it. And her mother's sort of, she thinks her mother's going to give her this lecture about, you know, why don't you just try and enjoy yourself? And she breaks down in tears and is screaming and shouting at her mother at the kitchen table. You know, what would you have me do, mum? What would you have me do? What do you want? <laughs> There's a pause. Her mum says, oh, I want to go. I want to go out. And then there's this lovely, very pregnant pause when Helen Hunt says, Okay, <laughs> and uh, that was that was the big moment, the big the big uh, speech which they play they played at the Oscars when she won Best Actress, and um, yeah, I think she's fantastic in it. I thought the cast. So were that great. tickled you, yeah? It, it didn't chime with me. Oh, but it's okay. Good that it's it's interesting that it tickled you. Uh, Helen Hunt's interested me for a long time. She she was working throughout the eighties. From the middle of the 80s, she was a contemporary of Sarah Jessica Parker. She worked with Coppola on Peggy Sue Got Married. Mm. Then by the middle of the 90s was firmly ensconced in sitcom land with Mad About You. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as that came to its end, she had a brief glut of films. Uh, This was slightly before those. This was while she was still working on Mad About You. So she got the Academy Award from this. And then all at once, Dr. T and the Women, Cast Away, Mm. Pay It Forward, What Women Want. And followed by um, that Woody Allen, the Curse of the Jade Scorpion, the Woody Allen Magicians one that isn't Scoop. Did you mention our favourite film from the makers of Jurassic Park? Twister. 
Oh, yes, yes, sorry, yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. That's something that brought me back to her, because I've... Because of the clutch that came out at the turn of the century, because it seemed she was flavour of the month, and then just as quickly evaporated, which was always made me wonder whether she had a great agent. So she gave a great audition to get as good as it gets, and then had a terrific agent that parlayed that Oscar win into a burst of five or six big films. But I was watching Twister last year, watched it a couple of times. She's got a lot of verve in that. Mm. Really likeable. In fact, everyone in that film is likeable. I think it might be slightly slept on. Paxton, Jamie Gertz, Helen Hunt, and the supporting cast led by Philip Seymour Hoffman and Alan Ruck. It's just forgotten. They're, it was big they're at all the time. good. Oh, yeah. It had a ride and it's one and of, I think it's still one of the... It's still one of the most profitable films made in the 90s and possibly of all time. And it's a bit of an outlier because... It doesn't have brand recognition. We should laud it for that. Mm. I mean, we, we joke, as you, you just joked about it, from the makers of Jurassic Park, but that's how it used to be, isn't it? It wasn't, here's the fourth Twilight film or the seventh <laughs> in the Harry Potter saga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. did you like Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park? Well, here's one with gorillas. <laughs> Maybe you'll like that too. Bruce Campbell's in there. Seriously, stay with me, Joe Don Baker. If you want to get on the Laura Linney train early, in 10 years' time, everyone's going to be talking about Laura Linney. So watch her now while she's interacting with an animatronic monkey. Um, so I like Helen Hunt, and I think she's good in this. But the way that she departed just after that clutch, um, I'm not sure why it happened. And uh, But I, I appreciate it nonetheless, and uh, I don't begrudge her the success that she had. And... Academy Award in winning performances, this is a fine one. I think that she's able to recite this dialogue in a way that makes it feel natural, mm. where she's not overly hard-bitten. She does feel like a waitress, and she looks like a waitress. Mm -hmm. She looks like she has you actually... the weight of her, the world on her shoulders, for sure. Yeah, yeah. The short scene where Jack is off-handedly very impolite to her. They left. Yeah, what do you know? Brian says he doesn't care how long you've been coming. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. I'm going to miss the excitement, but I'll handle it. Three eggs over easy. Two sausage, six strips of bacon with fries. Fries today. A short stack. Coffee with cream and sweetener. You're going to die soon with that diet. You know that. Well, we're all gonna die soon. I will, you will, and it sure sounds like your son will. If you ever mention my son again, you will never be able to eat here again. Do you understand? Give me some sign you understand, or leave now. Do you understand me, you crazy fuck? Do you? Okay, I'll get your order. 
understanding what is important to Melvin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's good, and and he sees the weight of what he's done. That realization, a very rare realization yeah, of, of yeah. uh oh, now I've really screwed up. I can say what I want to anyone, but this actually has some stakes because I have to. <laughs> this is the one person yeah. in this neighborhood I rely on to give me the same meal at the same table every single day. You're right, you're right, yeah. It's more about his connection to the world rather than realising he's offended a human. Mm. But, but were you not scene... touch... I said earlier on that James L. Brooks gave The Simpsons its heart. Uh, Matt Groening, you know, if you've ever read Life in Hell and Matt Groening's cartoon, which he did before The Simpsons, you'll you'll know that Matt Groening's sense of humour is... There is a, a big streak of that in The Simpsons, the show we, we came to know. But James L. Brooks grounded it in reality and, and really made that family and those characters quite believable, which then, of course, was the source of a lot of its humour. But, um, you know, if ever there... I, I can't remember who said this in an interview, but if there was ever a scene at the end of an episode where, you know, Marge is on... Marge and Homer on a bicycle riding off into the sunset, singing Raindrops yeah. Keep Falling on Your Head, that was James L. Brooks. It, it was that yeah. kind of thing, you know, where, you know, I always think that Marge and Homer are actually a really great married couple in a way because even though they have their differences and really struggle their way through life in those earlier seasons um they ultimately do love each other and they know they know that and i find that very very yeah. touching and what what i was about to say is that this film you can call it schmaltz it's a word i use quite a bit on the podcast i've realized since listening back to them but as good as it gets <laughs> has its share of schmaltz but are you are you not moved fletch at the wonderful scene which i re- i gets me every time uh where they're, they're on the road trip they're at the restaurant and um he's offended her again jack nicholson's offended helen hunt again and uh said and then she's she gets up to go and he's trying to encourage her to sit back at the table and says look you can give me the dirty looks but please just sit down and she's she continues <laughs> yeah. to stand and says pay me a compliment melvin i need one quick you have no idea how much what you just said hurt my feelings. The moment someone gets that they need you, they threaten to walk out. A compliment is something nice about somebody else. This is a request from June. Now or never. Okay. Happy anniversary. And mean it. Okay. I got a real great compliment for you, and it's true. I'm so afraid you're about to say something awful. Don't be pessimistic. It's not your style. Okay. Here I go. It's clearly a mistake. I've got this, what, ailment? My doctor, a shrink that I used to go to all the time, he says that in 50 or 60% of the cases, a pill really helps. I hate pills. Very dangerous thing, pills. Hate. I'm using the word hate here about pills. Hate. My compliment is that night when you came over and told me that you would never... Um. Um, All right, well, you were there. You You know what you said. Well, my compliment to you is the next morning I started taking the pills. I don't quite get how that's a compliment for me. 
You make me want to be a better man. That's maybe the best compliment of my life. Well, maybe I overshot a little because I was aiming at just enough to keep you from walking out. <laughs> <laughs> the score then starts to come in. The camera starts to s- yeah. slowly pan toward her. Yes, it's schmaltz. Yes, it's cheesy. Yes, it's using very, very obvious uh, um, devices, cinematic devices to, 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 to hook you in. But... But hey, aren't you moved? Are we just too cynical now, Fletch? Just too much time passed since 1997 for you not to think that's a cool scene and a cool line. I felt it was compromised by the filmmaking. I found myself wishing that the film had been made by better filmmakers, and I didn't expect that because James L. Brooks produced, for instance, Say Anything, which has for 20 years almost been one of my favourite films, one of my favourite romantic comedies. And that has a lightness of touch and a deftness about it that, as good as it gets, lacks. You talk about the instruments of filmmaking that interrupt that scene for me. The zoom-in, I don't need that. Uh, Hans Zimmer's score, and I think it is Zimmer, it isn't is, it? It is Which Hans is Zimmer. Which is surprising, because now we melody. know him as a... <laughs> yeah. It's whimsical. It should just be dissonant chords. It's whimsical it's... now, and, and, and it's great. I would urge you, go on Spotify, just give it a, give it a whirl, because the As Good As It Gets score has this whimsical feeling of the neighbourhood. I, I, I know that you and I have just sort of said that you don't really get a sense of the neighbourhood and the geography of it and the character of the neighbourhood. You just kind of go between a couple of locations... But uh, that score goes somewhere to bringing it to life. It is whimsical. I found the score overwhelming. It felt like a television movie. And, you know, I think what we're dealing with here is a schism in style. Mm. As Good As It Gets was released into the same marketplace as, for instance, Boogie Nights by P.T. Anderson. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that they're comparable films. It's apples and oranges. But where one new filmmaker is doing Boogie Nights... James L. Brooks is happy to show us. It's a very 40s-style old Hollywood. That's what As Good As It Gets felt like with the score, which is... I I, I was so surprised it was Hans Zimmer. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't even check until we got to the end of the film with its ghastly Art Garfunkel reinterpretation of Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. <laughs> Another cosmic irony because Luke's into Simon and Garfunkel and I saw produced by Hans Zimmer and I thought, well, the, the score can't have been him, really. Never has anybody benefited more from taking a minimalist approach than Zimmer. <laughs> and that's not to say that... I'm not saying it's bad music, but it doesn't, for me, it doesn't help me engage with a film like this to have plinky plonk plonk played over the top of ev- all of these scenes. There, Yeah, there was so much in the film that created distance between me and the the strife of the characters as I say performances were topped by the leads I didn't like Cuba Gooding Jr at all talking of agents he seems like someone who lucked out with Jerry Maguire playing a role that any number of young black actors could have taken and hit home hard with Mm. was it Rod Tidwell you know the show me the money thing which I haven't seen Jerry Maguire in a while I'm Mm -hmm. not sure I'd still be down with it it was never my favorite Cameron Crowe anyway it's not it's not almost famous, is it? Uh, you mentioned... Uh, sorry if I'm railroading you. You mentioned the uh, Art Garfunkel track playing out over the end. I do... Yeah. And you also mentioned um, 
uh, Mark Andrus, of course, who wrote the initial script. Uh, I think was Ralph Fiennes connected, and it was a completely different set of actors connected to this. Oh right, yeah, I believe so. And James L. Brooks didn't come on board till later, and it was being shopped around as a script called Old Friends. Of course, Old Friends is a Simon and Garfunkel song uh, from their third album, Bookends. Oh, and I wonder again, set in New York as well. I wonder if these are little uh, things that have filtered, just about managed to filter down through the James L. Brooks. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, filter, I suppose, for one of a... You're uh, right. Putting it. And that's what Hollywood does. Uh, uh, regrettably, what Hollywood does is it takes something personal and changes it so comprehensively that it's then difficult to figure out what were the original connections. So we've had to go so far back there. Mm. I kind of feel like this was the last massive hurrah of his, because of James L. Brooks, because, of course, after this we had How Do You Know, which... Um, is that the last film Jack Nicholson was even in at all? Uh, and that was yeah. Paul Rudd, yeah. Reese Witherspoon, and that just sort of bombed, right? That uh, and that, I yeah. think that's the last film to this to this day. Owen Wilson, I didn't see it, and again, it's one where because of his eighties reputation, I made a note to try and get out to see it. It didn't play for very long. He's kind of faded in the way that Bogdanovich barely gets films at the cinema any longer. Mm. Uh, Jack Nicholson has got... He's in talks for the remake of Tony Erdman, mm. the German film that came out last year or the year before. Okay. Must have been the year before, because I haven't heard it mentioned in Best Ofs recently, so maybe it was the year before. Uh, yeah, Jack's kind of... You, you, he's wound down. There were, uh, About 18 months ago, a lot of chatter about how he'd officially retired because he was suffering from Alzheimer's or losing his marbles. Yeah. That's not the case at all. If you look at his filmography... He just became old like everybody else, but unlike everybody else, like say Robert Duvall, for instance, he hasn't uh, he hasn't kept going. He takes one project every three or four years, perhaps. I mean, up up to about twenty years ago, he's working consistently: Mars Attacks, and Crossing Guard, and Blood and Wine. But then, just recently, yeah, his last five films were the ones we've mentioned. The, the Bucket List by Reiner, oh, which yeah. is awful. Oh, with um... Something's Got to Give by one of my favourite directors, Nancy Myers. Mm. And, uh, yeah, with Morgan Freeman. Mm. And um, Departed, which is terrific. Departed is, uh, is, is fantastic. And, uh, yeah, he, of all things, he gave an interview with the Sun newspaper. And to this day, <laughs> I, will, I will never know why that's the outlet he chose to break his silence. But all of these rumours that he had a had short-term memory loss or whatever i couldn't remember lines and was getting very very old he gave an interview with the sun and basically said oh well i just i'm sort of enjoying retirement i stopped making movies and then realized uh i didn't i didn't care quite so much or whatever or i'm quite enjoying it but he's often like you say he's often in talks to do stuff i think he just mm. picks and chooses things because i i i think he was even in talks at one point to do saint vincent uh, two or three years ago, and then and then recommended Bill Murray himself as as someone to succeed oh, him yeah. in the cast. So I think he does. I think he's working. He just doesn't always finish a film, if that makes sense. I think he's just picking projects. Yeah, he's ready to work. I mean, the way I see it, he's eighty. I don't know why we expect actors to work so much longer than <laughs> we expect normal people to. The age of retirement is sixty-five. We wouldn't. You wouldn't want it if you think that Jack Nicholson has been working consistently in films since he was twenty-two or twenty-three. 
That's a long old time. I suppose. Chill, chill out. I suppose. You know? And he he looks his age as well. Unlike say Redford, who still looks could maybe play a touch younger. Jack Nicholson looks like a man in his seventies. So I suppose it's because we're led to believe uh, that they're artists, and um, surely if they are a true artist, they would, you know, have to produce, have to create. Until as long as there's pub, uh, blood pumping through their veins. Criticism I have of the film is that although he's decent in it, I feel he's better served by films he did after As Good As It Gets. And I think he has more energy in films that he did after As Good As It Gets as well. Mm. Like The Pledge, for instance, and The Departed. The Departed I like because he looks like crap. Mm. He looks like a man who's lived hard for all of his 65, 70 years. In the end, he's wearing... Uh, a shabby when he gets shot to death in the film he's wearing a shabby t-shirt his hair's everywhere mm. there's no vanity about it. it he's a old broken used up nasty old man mm. and that's exactly what he looks like do you remember I like um, alexander payne's about schmidt in 2002 I, I remember enjoying that i don't think i've seen it since then i i can't say i'm looking forward to downsizing any longer because the reviews there's a, there's a, the buzz about it is so lukewarm. Mm. I'm not quite sure why, because for me, Alexander Payne might be the best writer-director working today. I'm not sure. He's able to connect with me so strongly in The Descendants, and especially Nebraska, ne- with Bruce Dern. Nebraska, funnily enough, was, a, was another film that uh, J- Jack Nicholson was going to do until... Right, makes sense, yeah. I, I mean, it does feel almost written for him. And of course, I'm, I'm not surprised Alexander Payne is one of your favourite filmmakers at the moment, because who could deny one of the many writers of Jurassic Park 3 as, yeah. <laughs> as, uh, yeah. as a, uh, a filmmaker, their filmmaking prowess. Do you ever talk about how his partner's called Jim Taylor? <laughs> I haven't done uh, with, what, with, with my co-host James Taylor. On uh, yeah, he might like that, on yeah. uh, on on the on our sister podcast uh, local job. No, I haven't. I haven't mentioned that to him. Maybe I should. All told, as good as it gets, was a disappointment for me. In spite of the decent performances, I think you watched it too late. You, you've only watched it now, Maybe. and going back to nineties, I think it's a sign of the times. You mentioned the sheen and the gloss on it. I think that is a nineties sheen. I, I know precisely what you mean, and I wish that I had the technical knowledge to know precisely why that was in vogue at the time with cinematographers. Mm. You talk about the close, sort of, the, the everything's quite a close um, kind of crop, I suppose. You know, there's, the, every, there's extreme close-ups of, of faces and, and that when, when people are talking. I do wonder in the 90s if that was, a th- like you mentioned Jurassic Park as well, and this is just my hairbrain theory but i wonder if there's something about the popularity of vhs and the uh, fact that back then tvs were pan and scan four to three rate aspect ratio i wonder if people yeah. were shooting films with the home video market in mind but yeah i, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be surprised if the version i saw had been incorrectly cropped or i was watching it in the wrong screen format it didn't feel like anything was missing from the edges, but it felt so closed in. But then the scenes themselves as well were didn't seem to have... I was trying to figure out why they were in the sequence they were, trying to understand why so many of them were either particularly short or didn't really hit a, a point of impetus within the scene. Mm. So many scenes, for me, couldn't really be justified. 
And I don't know if it's a film I'll return to. It do- but if it I do, then I'll, I'll like at least, <laughs> I'll at least, I'll, I'll try to better understand it. Uh, one thing it does have, though, which connects it to Titanic by James Cameron, is that both films have pivotal scenes in which the female lead models for a nude drawing. That's true. And yeah. going in to watch it, I didn't realise that. Uh. And then we approach the point as Greg Kinnear glances at Helen Hunt as she's about to run a bath. Inspiration strikes him and he's able to regain his artistic mojo. And I thought, this is crazy. I, I did expect her to say, draw me like one of your French girls, Greg. I mean, Jack. <laughs> I mean, and what's he called? <laughs> Simon. And both uh, both actresses are nominated in the same Oscar category that yeah. year as well. Yeah. What a weird connection. How specific is that? Let's see what we have to say about about Titanic. Now, already listeners will know that it's among my favourite films ever it's not in the top 100 best films i've seen but it's in the top 100 of my favorite films titanic's an interesting one for me i would completely agree with you now that it's one of my favorite films of all time it's one that i can re-watch again and again and again and again so there's no problems there whatsoever but being a few years younger than you fletch i was of a slightly different age and titanic um I was introduced to Titanic in a, in a very particular way. 1997, and I guess the teaser trailer probably came out in 96, so I would have been nine years old. I was a big Terminator fan and a big Alien fan, not least because, uh, if you remember, in the early 90s, Kenner did very successful toy lines for both Terminator 2 Judgment Day and Aliens. Yeah, yeah. So... James Cameron was a director I was very aware of as a kid, up there with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. He was someone who was spoken about on the playground. And my friend Dan Peacher, a little shout out to him, came running up to me in the playground one day because he'd gone to see a film the night before. And I can't remember what the film was, but he'd gone to see this movie and there was a teaser trailer for Titanic. And Titanic was something I'd always been um, fascinated in. There'd probably been some kind of like Blue Peter documentary about Titanic or something over the years. Do you know what I mean? Probably when, probably in the early 90s when they were regularly going down to see the wreck because it had only been discovered in the mid 80s or or whatever it, it was. So I was really, really thrilled that they were making this Titanic film. And it was the same guy that made Terminator, for God's sake. And he described in graphic detail the teaser trailer, which sounded like a real action film. People were running around with guns. It sounded like there were frenetic chase scenes and all this kind of thing. And then when I saw like the poster like a year later, because again, don't forget, no internet. And also being a little kid as well, wasn't necessarily buying lots of film magazines or whatever, because I, I don't think I even got pocket money at that age. And then when Titanic was finally marketed to me, uh, it was this sweeping gone with the wind. It looked like a chick flick as... We kind of called them back then. And it left a real sour taste in my mouth. And I and I remember just feeling utterly cheated that this really kick-ass action director that I'd idolised had sold out and made some kind of bizarre romantic film. And I got really, really disappointed. <laughs> and before I actually saw... I, don't, I never saw it at the cinema. I know that for a fact. I saw it on VHS. And in fact, it was Dan Peacher, my very same friend, who'd been hooked by the marketing early on. And had it on VHS, got it for VHS, I guess, the following Christmas. And I didn't watch it from beginning to end with him either. I just I just watched bits of it. And it 
I, I couldn't, being an eight-year-old boy, I just found it too reprehensible to watch this this thing that had been marketed uh, as a as a as a romantic film. And and not only that, I think by this point the backlash was kicking in because that Celine Dion song had been number one for God knows how long. I think French and Saunders Saunders riffing on it in the UK yeah, and yeah. all this kind of thing. So it was a real cultural moment. And I, it wasn't until many years later that I started to really get into Titanic and reevaluate it. By the time I was, I don't know, in my late teens and old enough to know far, far better. And it's interesting that I think James Cameron was trying to make an action film. If you look at the original teaser poster, and the guys over at Red Letter Media um, talk about this quite, quite a lot. In fact, when I came across their video many years ago, I realized on YouTube, I realized, oh my God, it wasn't just me. I wasn't just imagining it because they show you the te- teaser poster, which is this big steel riveted uh, close up of a ship's hull. And then it's got Titanic in kind of big, bold type. And it's uh, going down diagonally, obviously sinking ship. Um, it's very clear that going from that to that kind of Gone with the Wind iconic poster of uh, Jack and Rose are just above the superimposed, just above the ship um, hmm. on each other's shoulder. It's clear that there was a real big pivot. So, so yeah, I guess I wasn't going mad. They did have a pivot in the marketing. And, of course, Titanic was Cameron's folly at the time. Uh, the buzz going on was it was the most expensive film ever made. It was going way, way over budget. Uh, it's it's commonplace now, but when I rewatched it the other day, it, it really made me smile that it, you've got both 20th Century Fox and Paramount at the beginning because they yeah. both had to take the risk on board. These days, you get a couple studios doing that regularly as the original tagline was collide with destiny. And then hmm. the, the, the final tagline is nothing on earth could come between them. So again, it really, yeah. really is this kind of... Uh, change and I, I do think that James Cameron I think originally was setting up to make an action picture but I think ultimately he realised that and I think you've touched on this in the podcast in the past it's a big big budget picture there's a lot at stake and you need to appeal to as many people as possible and yeah. and he did it expertly by having the romantic love story to hook the teenage girls and I'm quoting you now that you've said this if, the, if you get the teenage girls in, you get the, teen, the teenage boys follow pretty soon. Uh, of course, it's also the sort of film, because it's a period film, you also get this... Um, it, it's that film that a lot of older people will go and see. Like you just said, Great Exotic Marigold Hotel. It's one of those films where when you're sitting in the cinema, or when I went to go and see um, the third Bridget Jones film with Lex uh, a year or so ago, I think we covered it on the podcast possibly, you just instantly can look around the cinema and it's a completely different demographic to what you're used to yeah, because yeah. it's just it's just the sort of film it's like recently Victorian Abdul or a film like that where older people can go see it as well so he he expertly made this film that can appeal to absolutely every single demographic it's mad genius how he did it and uh, so much of that film the last third is all out action and it's awesome yeah. because I love the the chase scenes through the uh, engine room where I'm like, if you squint, you could be watching Terminator, the original Terminator in, in the, at the end when they're running through the print impress or whatever it is. It, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, there's uh, it's a really, really interesting film. But, and, and I think it's interesting that they did kind of make this um, this strange pivot. 
uh, and I don't want to go on too long because I want you to talk about it as well because in a certain sense you were you were there first. But I'll conclude with uh, <laughs> with with that there are remnants in that last third of I think the film he was originally trying to make, and you've got like the Lovejoy character for example, he's got that big gash on his head at the end, and I guess in the final cut it looks like he's just been bashed about by the boat. But there was a deleted, mm. a lo- very long deleted scene. With a massive fist fight between him and Jack with uh, with the gun and, and all this kind of thing. It was in the water as well. Again, a kind of Cameron esque uh, thing. You know, lots of fighting in the in the in the, wa- in the water. So yeah. Um, my problem, my only problems with it, because because it ticks all the boxes for me. I think it was it was genius the way they put the film together. And and of course, it seems so obvious now in hindsight. But yes, it was this massive cultural uh, mile, uh, um, moment for everyone because of that, and it was completely seismic. At the end, I love the final shot where obviously it ends in tragedy, but I I could rewatch a thousand times the point of view camera trailing through the after it's sunk after it's all over we've got we flash back to the future again with uh, with Bill Paxton and and old Rose, but then the, we suddenly then go back to the Titanic in in all of its period splendor and glory. And the camera point of view goes travels through as in a very surreal way all of the passengers, all the people we've just watched die and drown, or maybe escape on a lifeboat, are waiting, looking at the camera, and you think, who is this walking through this sea of people? And then at the top of the stairs, there's Jack, and he offers his hand, uh, and we, the audience, you know, are so thrilled that we can see him alive again. The camera pans round and we see that it we're seeing through Rose's eyes and and she she has as she said she she never let go and she's still dancing with him and then everyone everyone applauds the couple and and I don't know it's schmaltzy but that's it's my bag I love it it's fantastic and um my only problems with it is on the nose stilted dialogue and you know it's it's very utilitarian in the way that it's it's written and I really can't stand a lot of the stuff like uh, a lot of the in-jokes uh, for people to, to, to get, which are really obvious, which pe- period films get all the time. Oh, what's the artist's name? Looking at these paintings that have been brought on board. Uh, something Picasso. <laughs> you know, it's this kind of thing. Yeah, you know, yeah, its reputation for that has been overstated. So <laughs> let me let me see how I can wind it back. Freud, who's he? A passenger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because it's not as camp and chintzy as its reputation would suggest. Titanic is a film that so many of us have known for so long that we can't see the wood for the trees. I agree. It's been 20 years, and for most people our age, whether you're 30 or 40 or 50, that film has been with you for 20 years, and you, to an extent you take it for granted and don't realise... Uh, now, number one, that it has to be considered in the Pantheon as a James Cameron film. Mm-hmm. Now, as you've said, I can see that... I don't think there was a heavy edit job done on it, but I think that at some point in the process, perhaps Cameron was advised to give us 10% more romance and take out 10% of action. Mm. It's a James Cameron film, first and foremost. It hasn't got substantially more romance than The Terminator. Its love scene is quite similar to Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean going at it in The Terminator. Doomed Lovers... Mm. In the Terminator, as in Titanic, it has a strong female lead, just as most of James Cameron's films do. Mm-hmm. The evocation of that is beautiful as Kate Winslet travels from a kept woman to 
fearsome, independent woman. And at every stage, and this is the, I think this is the power of James Cameron's simple storytelling as a screenwriter. We see that progression and it feels real. Modern audiences may say that she's disempowered and that she's saved by Jack. And she says in the film, she says, I was saved in every way that a person can be saved. But she saves him, like she literally saves him by growing as a woman and becoming more independent over the course of the film's events. She's the one (laughs) who charges out, gets the axe and literally, think about that, literally saves him. He would have drowned. And we do have that wonderful... She's the only person that can save him. We do have that wonderful scene at the end where... (laughs) We realise she has grown as a woman because the camera goes by all the photoshopped pictures of Kate Winslet riding a horse, Kate Winslet flying an aeroplane. And but you know, <laughs> she really lived a life. That, that's, I think that's a rare example of mock-ups that look real. They truly look like period photographs and it's so rare to find that. But yeah, I think those photographs look terrific and that will take us back to the... I cry as well. I cry every time at... And and that's when we discover another theme of the film. So Titanic is a James Cameron film. It's a James Cameron action movie. And it has all of the tropes of that. It even has Jeanette Goldstein, Vasquez herself, as the Irish mammy talking about tearing a nog. Yeah. But the pan across Rose's bedroom. It's interesting that she brought all of her photographs with her because she's still on Bill Paxton's salvage boat at that point they do set but that anyway, up though which is which is a great they thing do, yeah, the film. Yeah. At, at the beginning when she's arriving on the boat bill paxton there's a scene where oh sorry a shot where he looks somewhat shocked or perplexed that she she's brought so many um belongings with her and they're setting it all up in her little cabin and that he says oh is everything to your liking or whatever and she says yes everything's lovely thank you and um and that luke that's another way in which we can see just how talented a storyteller James Cameron is. He sets it up. Another example, one of my favourite interactions, and it shows what a gangster Spicer Lovejoy is. He needs a spin-off. We need a young Spicer Lovejoy movie. Billy Zane goes to the safe to get the heart of the ocean, and he says, I make my own luck, yeah. which is bullshit, because he's just inherited all of his money. And then Spicer stood across from him, gestures to his pocket, reveals the gun, and he says, so do yes. I. And you think, whoa, yeah, I love Spicer Lovejoy. He's so real. But... That's, you only need that one scene shown in the final cut, written into the screenplay and filmed and shown in the final cut. And then when Billy Zane goes for the gun to chase after them, there's no explanation necessary because we've seen where Spicer Lovejoy keeps his awesome pistol. Otherwise, and a modern film, uh, a film with less attention to detail, more slapdash, a less experienced director or someone who just doesn't care, they just have the bloke have a gun suddenly. And it's then on the second or third viewing that you realise, where'd that gun come from? Mm. When was it established that that character had a gun? Now, as you've said, Spicer's meant to go on all sorts of adventures and then get bloodied. And he, he gets the worst death, doesn't he? Like yeah. the, the boat breaks in two and he falls into a fiery inferno. Is there any other kind of inferno? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, a flaming chasm. Um, but sorry, going back to the pan across the photographs, which I adore, that then moves into the 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 uh the tour of titanic and opens onto the crowd scene and the important thing there is oh it makes me cry even now all the goodies are there a part of a never left titanic and they've been waiting for her to return yeah. all these 80 years um the band that went down with the yes, ship yes i know first officer murdoch played by ewan stewart now at the time of its release his progeny 
were quite disappointed with his depiction in the film. Mm. He's shown as shooting a passenger, I think, and then shooting himself. And it's quite sad, but Cameron goes to lengths to show that he's a goodie because he's with the rest of the goodies. He salutes as they go past. There's the nice Irishman. There's Danny Nucci's Fabrizio, the tall Scandinavian girl. The boat's designer is there, and so is Mr. Guggenheim. And, you know, all all the fun characters, all the good-hearted characters are there and then she ascends the stairs and this is I only realized this a couple of years ago but the camera continues into the air as they kiss everyone applauds which is just beautiful a beautiful moment and the last person to applaud and the last image we see is the captain of Titanic played by Bernard Hill he's standing with his hands apart on the banister then brings them together to applaud and that's the last moment and that's when you realize this is a romance, but it's about a boat. It's about the romance of the tragedy of Titanic. And it connects back to one of the last scenes in the film when Bill Paxton, having heard this uh, glorious story, he's chatting with, I think it's Susie Amos, who's now James Cameron's 17th wife. <laughs> They're still together, though, so it's worked out for him. I do, he's, dated some, he's dated and married some of the most brilliant women in Hollywood, not least Catherine Bigelow. But anyway, um, and Bill Paxton and Susie Amos are talking, and he says... All this time, two years, searching, looking for Titanic, trying to recover it, and I never let it in. And he's talking about, uh, he, he is the avatar there, he's the analogue for James Cameron, who made this film not because he didn't come up with Titanic and then go down to it. He, uh, I, as I understand it, James Cameron, an oceanographer of incredible renown and repute, one of the, James Cameron is one of, uh, how to put it, no one who has ever lived on the planet has been lower in the ocean than James Cameron. Is that is that a fact? And that's his hobby, right? He has been to the bottom of Challenger Deep. Two other people in the world have done that. They did it in the late 50s or early 60s, and then Cameron did it this century. And, and again, that's what he does in his spare time. In his spare time, he breaks world records for travelling down to the bottom of the ocean. S- uh, astonishing stuff. The, the guy's amazing. On his days off... He was doing stuff like that and became enchanted by Titanic as, um, as a monolith and as, uh, as a, a challenge to meet. Mm. And so he's exploring it and learning more about it. And then he thinks, make a film about Titanic purely so he could get down there. He just wanted somebody to fund him so he could get down in a sub and see more of it. So he came up with a kind of a cockamamie film idea. Then over the course of exploring the myth of Titanic better understanding how this boat sank, as it's explained in the film, the characters on board and the majesty and tragedy of all of that, he fell in love with it. Uh, and that was my mission when I, left, when I left the ship, when I left the shipwreck, if that makes sense. I mean, it, it sounds no, kind of no, hokey, no. But, but, you know, you've, you've interviewed the people that in the, in the past that right. found the wreck. Matt Ballard. And, and they, they talk in very profoundly emotional terms about the experience, and it almost sounds a little hokey and self-serving unless you've been there. And spent the time, and then it it has an effect on you. Putting the cart before the horse, I suppose. But that's how it is for me. I think it, the Titanic's been misunderstood as a a romance between Jack and Rose. It's not. It's a love film about a boat. I th- and it says, and that that's what I mean about wood wood for the trees. You, you see it now, and you realise, oh yeah, he's saying that from the very beginning. He is, and. The attention to detail is 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 fantastic. Uh, the the sets are made with such love and care and attention, and things like the ballroom, it, it, the staircase. It's it's all made with 
you know very historically accurate and you know even even yeah. the uh even the uh car that that they make love in later on and we see at the beginning uh even that's uh set up actually that we, we see it in the You're wonderful right. we see it, yes. establishing shot which i die, I die for yeah. i die for that establishing shot when um, when Bill Paxton said, he, can, can you, are you ready to go back to Titanic? Which is, yeah. Are you ready to go back to Titanic? <laughs> At the same time, such a cheesy line, but my God, <laughs> I, uh, I go no, crazy this, for uh, it. Uh, uh, that's again, James Cameron, um, underrated as a writer. He's able to write simply but memorably. Right, so Jack, this is where we first met. People make fun of that line. I think in that situation, that's what I'd say. And you might say it as well, and Lex might say, oh, shut up. We've got bigger things to deal with, Luke. But that is what you'd say. I don't think in, she'd be uh, speaking uh, uh, in, if we were actually on the, on the bow of the boat. But as it was a young lady, in exclamation to her new lover, would realise the incredible irony of the moment and say, Jack, this is where we first met. Yeah. And now we're going to die, you know. that You would say yeah. that. And um, are you ready to go back to Titanic? Yeah, it doesn't sound great when we deliver it. Put it in the mouth of Bill Paxton. It's the same with Game Over Man. It's the same with um, when Michael Bean in the Terminator... No, sorry, when Linda Hamilton in the Terminator says... Uh, what is it? Uh, in the hours we had together, we loved a lifetime. Mm. It's written simply, but memorably. Delivered excellently. Very well cast. Billy Zane and his not the better half quip. That's superb as well, the escalation in that scene. That's good dialogue. That's good dialogue that speaks It speaks to the predicament and to the character. Another little moment I'd like to draw attention to is at the moment that Rose finally extricates herself from Billy Zane, mm. Khaled and Hockley, she spits in his face, which is a skill that Jack taught Yeah, they her. set up the spitting. <laughs> you know? Everything's set and, up. And again, all you need is just one scene earlier. Modern filmmakers, and I'm not all of them, you know, but lazy filmmakers in 2017, 2018, and for the last 15 years, they don't bother to do that stuff. You remembered that, that we get a shot of the car going on, because otherwise, if suddenly they're shagging in a car, an audience will wonder, why is there a car on the Titanic? <laughs> Where's the car come from? But all you need is a shot early on, and because of its positioning in that early establishing shot, the audience remembers it. They may not even realise that they're remembering it, but they will remember it enough to think back to, oh, yeah, there was a car. I remember that. She had on a big hat. She looked up. It went to a wide shot. There was a car being delivered onto the boat. Mm. So many little things like that. And I love that moment when she spits in his face because it's a, a proper separation. Um, and it, I think it speaks to her liberation as well. Yeah, and her uh, kind and of that, liberating herself from her car. Um her cast her class as well uh so so yeah she's no longer the first class ladies she's she's there with the the, the third classes in a certain sense and uh and, and yeah, behaving I'm... more like them so she, she's she's broken out of her relationship with her fiance her dominating fiance and also broken out of her class barrier as well so yeah it, it does say an awful lot and I'll concede that life's a lot easier when you've got the heart of the ocean as collateral because I presume that although she still has the diamond, she could quite comfortably at every stage in her life said, I'd like to buy an apartment. Um, I don't have a lot of money, but I do have the biggest diamond in the world as long as you don't tell anybody about it. Yeah, Lex and I were talking about it the other day when we were re-watching and we were talking about if she would use it as collateral or not and probably would because I think one of us said, I, I said, oh, at some point you'd probably have sold it, surely. Because she gives yeah. an alias at the end, doesn't she? 
She uh, she uses Jack's mm. surname when they're asking, trying to take the names of survivors. So clearly, she did not have any inheritance whatsoever. Ended up in New York and had to start completely from scratch. So yeah, you're right. She probably yeah. was renting with that diamond as collateral in some way. You can imagine her CV. Well, what are you good at? Um, I can wade through ice cold water like a motherfucker. <laughs> I can spit really well. Um, act skills adequate, but you know improving <laughs> but what you've said reminds me of a, a film my dad mentioned to me um, a ronald neem film that i only saw once but uh 15 years ago was watching the telly and my dad said oh that's the million pound note and it's this gregory peck film where uh he's a, a down on his luck american happy go lucky but down on his luck i can't remember how but he comes across a couple of aristocrats in london and they give him a million pound note and i think they say that he can keep it as long as he doesn't spend it so as I remember the film, for the first half hour of having the paper, he just goes into suit shops and says, I'd like a suit, please. And they say, you're a bum, get out of here. And he says, well, I do have this million pound note. <laughs> oh, well, step this way, sir. Um, of course, we'll open an account for you. Don't worry, you know, because who can split a million pounds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, funnily enough, you mentioned, I, I just brought up the, the line you were talking about, and you're right, the escalation is fantastic, because it, it says a lot about the characters, uh, and and uh, where Rose is coming at from her mother and also her fiance, and it also um, rather deftly, or I mean, I, you could argue either way if it does it deftly or not. But it also talks about the uh, the, the historical uh, um, accuracy or you know whatever the historical facts of the moment. So Rose's mum says, "Will these lifeboats be seated according to class? I hope they're not too crowded." Oh, mother, shut up! Don't you understand? The water's freezing, and there aren't enough boats. Not enough by half. Half the people on the ship are going to die. Cal says, not the better half. Come on, Ruth, get on the boat. First class seats are right up here. You know, it's a pity I didn't keep that drawing. It'd be worth a lot more by morning. You unimaginable bastard. You know, it's it's all there. It's a great, it's yeah. a great half it's, dozen lines. It's broad strokes, but Cameron's directing an epic. Mm. You need broad strokes in an epic. I was watching Lawrence of Arabia the other day, and some of that's a little bit on the nose, but you need broad strokes. Mm. Broad strokes works, but broad strokes, but in, in another way, detail. Detailed at the same time, as in introducing a concept and then giving it a payoff, as we've talked about. One of the, my favourite moments in the whole film, he says, Rose is fine, has finally consented to getting onto a lifeboat. It's being lowered. And I've analysed this scene to myself when I saw it, I think it was Christmas 16, I caught it. I've only seen it once in the last 12 months, but I was watching it Christmas 16, and the lifeboat is lowered. She looks up and in the frame is Billy Zane, Leonardo DiCaprio and an extra. And so the first thing I thought was, that's interesting that an extra is on one side, Billy Zane's on the other. It's funny that they didn't frame it differently. Mm. And I thought, I think what Cameron's communicating there is that Billy Zane's character is no of no greater importance to her than anybody else on that boat because all she cares about is Jack. So he could be anybody. Mm. So already her any any kind of affiliation with him has been lost. And the, the lifeboat lowers and lowers and she's considering whether or not she's going to stay on the lifeboat. And we all know that she leaps off. Then Jack says, you're so stupid. You're so, yeah, you know, yeah. Which I, I quite like. But there's a moment where she looks back up again and now the shot is framed with just DiCaprio and a flare explodes in the sky behind his head. And that to me, that's what cinema's about to me. That's cinema. Mm. Her in that moment, her love for him and everything he represents in her escaping her life is crystallised, and it's as though fireworks explode. 
whenever she sees him. That's cinema, ladies and gentlemen. That's how you do it. I think we're coming back into a new golden age of special effects now. I I really do. Uh, but we had to go through some painful years where, in yeah. the 2000s, where CG was all the rage. Everyone wanted to play with the new toy, which I hasten to add, I completely understand. I'm not criticising the fact that... Many people would, but I'm not criticising the fact that Attack of the Clones, uh, Star Wars Episode 2, looks a little... A little bit rubbish because I do, I do think yeah. things boundaries have to be pushed and you have to take things too far sometimes before you know how far to pull it back and I think that yeah. I think that special effects now are becoming very very sophisticated and and if done in the right way it can look fantastic but I think there was a wonderful moment in the mid nineties and it started with Jurassic Park. Uh, and Titanic was was maybe the peak of it, where CG was there, but purely down to the cost as much as anything else. You couldn't have everything made of computer-generated imagery. And there was still... I mean, even the Star Wars prequels use a tremendous amount of miniatures. I don't think, I don't think any film has had more miniatures than The Phantom Menace. But ne- nevertheless, Titanic, through, through miniature shots and using the CG to enhance things and extend crowd scenes and just give everything this um this 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 bigger bit of scope or you know shooting a miniature uh ship that's gonna you know smash into the water but then enhancing that with cg effects i think that this i think the film stands stands up quite well and 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 looks fantastic there's there's just a few scenes where very occasionally um it, it looks it it looks a little ropey by today's standards but you know all the stuff where they're the camera is on the dolly and it's just being flung yeah. through the uh, through the door uh, the, the corridors as all the doors are coming off the hinges and the water's flying in you know it's, it's miniature shots and uh, yeah. and, and yeah. I think that using all of these tools together I think the film looks fantastic and that establishing shot where we see the, the car um, I think that there's just this wonderful look CG shots had back then. You see it um, a little bit in the young Indiana Jones TV show. and uh, I was about yeah. to say, yeah, it feels a bit like that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I think you're, you're right. I'd wondered whether I was alone in thinking that CG reached its apogee around that time. And I'd specifically point to Titanic and Starship Troopers. Mm. I spoke with Byrne about it, a couple of other people, and he confirmed to me that, yes, there is a feeling among tech heads and on the forums that it didn't, what it achieved and its limitations and the uh, the virtues of its limitations around the time of Starship Troopers and Titanic, which came out in the, at the, around the same time in the US. Um, we're on 20 years of Starship Troopers and Luke and I will be discussing it in more depth later on this year in the Electronic Labyrinth where we'll pair it with Paul Verhoeven's L. Came out last year, Luke hasn't had a chance to see it. Superb film. But it was at the end of the 90s that limitations on CG meant that it could only be used to enhance rather than proliferate. And I noticed that re-watching Titanic recently, um, there's not that many shots of the whole ship. In fact, I think the film suffers slightly because it's quite rare that it pulls back all of the way. When the boat breaks in two, and just before it breaks in two, we get a few shots that properly show extras running up the swiftly sinking boat so you know they're, they're running uphill by this point towards the bow but there's not too much that there aren't too many money shots mm. 
and I think that shows how they had to be sparing. But this is the thing, like at the same time, so Cameron was augmenting his work with CG. He wasn't letting it uh, override everything else. And so much of Titanic, I mean, it's the painstake that the the lengths they went to to recreate Titanic itself. Going back to, if I recall correctly, going back to the designers and clothiers of and haberdashers of the original uniforms for like the precise buttons yeah. a button and remember this is in we haven't even got really got dvd at this point yeah no one's gonna see that but cameron knows it and he wants it on there it's a little bit like when robert de niro went to the shop that made al capone's underwear <laughs> so that he had the right skivvies for the untouchables it's about getting into character and i think there's a lot to be said like um so for instance paul feig and judd apatow both wear suits when they're on set sam raimi does it as well i think there's something to be said for that uh, generating up the work beautifully put yeah that's what it's about and i think it's the same with titanic um this is why lucas suffered on on the prequels i mean with the shit he writes, it's difficult enough to get an, an actual emotion out of even a decent actor like Natalie Portman, who is good, and Liam Neeson. But then when they're acting with nothing, mm. and it's the same with Rodriguez, the work that he's done over the last 12 years, Cameron, yeah, Cameron turns up to work. He has people in costumes. He can point to that and say, uh, that's era appropriate. I went back to the company that made it, the Rivets, the pineapple that gets shot off. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's a pineapple anyway. All of what this you mean stuff on the, on the stairwell, gone... on the staircase. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, I think I think yeah. that's bust I'm... in the wreck, right? I think there's only one left. So uh, mm. I like <laughs> I like that they put in the uh, the idea that it got it got shot <laughs> in the chase scene. And I like that you, you mentioned this a few weeks ago, and I think you're right, and it's encouraging to me that CG we've had a period of adjustment over about 15 years. Like with anything, the pendulum always swings too far in one direction. Mm-hmm. And then it settles back to the middle. And Atomic Blonde is a good example, wherein it's not necessary to CG entire characters like in the Matrix sequels. But you just take out the wires, mm. take out the bungee cords, maybe add a little bit of blood and use um, use computer augmentation to uh, to make eight cuts flow into one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how you do it. Um, and hopefully, you know, we would hope that maybe 2017-18 will be like 97-98 and we'll once again see CG integrated at the top of its game. Mm. Best <clears throat> uh, special effects in the Disney era of Star Wars have been Rogue One, uh, Star Destroyers, the, the old Star Wars ships. It's fascinating. I, I saw um, one of the big ILM chaps, could have been Rob Coleman, presentation where they're... In the same way that they used to bash up airfix kits in the 70s and put them together to make spaceships for Star Wars or whatever film it was, they're doing that now. Yeah. They, they, they're creating all of these digital assets, uh, which are digital airfix kits, and then they're putting them all together. So um, I suppose, I think they're making things in a different... I think they're making CG models in a different way now as well, which is um, which probably goes a long, long way to, to helping the look and feel of things. I think that Rogue One film, Gareth Edwards' Rogue One, from a couple of years back now, um, was it last year? Last year. Um, looks really, really great. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I guess we've got... I'm trying to think off the top of my head what big ones are coming out next ye- uh, this year. It's not Avatar 2, that's for damn sure. How, 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 how many times has <laughs> yeah. that been pushed back? Oh, 
Battle Angel is another that Cameron's had on IMDb for almost the entire century. He's got this Terminator reboot on there now, which uh, is is ominous. Yeah, I, I've modern cinema lacks for James Cameron. There's a few McTiernan, Verhoeven, Cameron, and when she's not making action pictures, Bigelow is a huge one as well. Sam Raimi too. Uh, I think we'll talk later on this year about. Bigelow's Detroit, which I saw and I think Luke wasn't able to. Maybe we can find it I, when I it's streaming. I saw Detroit. Detroit, it was great. Oh, you yeah. did. You did see Detroit. Yeah, I did. Right, we'll have we'll, we'll have to make sure we pair that with something then, like Near Dark or Strange Days. But there's a there's a slew of action oriented directors that haven't really worked this century with the rate that they did in the nineties, and and we're missing them. And I haven't. Partly because of that, I haven't properly interacted with modern action cinema. So when I saw Atomic Blonde, I was taken aback. For all I know, that's what the last four or five years of action films have been like. I also, I need to make sure that I pay greater attention to Halmi Koyetsera, director of so many of those modern Liam Neeson pictures, non-stop, run all night, The Commuter. He didn't do the first couple of Takens. Apparently... He's really good. I saw The Shallows. We both saw The Shallows, didn't we? No, I did not see The Shallows. You did? Sorry, I, I don't know why I'm confusing Detroit and no. The Shallows. But, uh, I was, yeah, uh, I was in at the deep end and did not see The Shallows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's too easy to just say, well, Edgar Wright and there's no one else. Yeah. That's not true. There are interesting people doing decent stuff. If, uh, it just It may not be done on the same scale because I think in the 90s... The actioners of the era, T2 as well, were made by conventional action directors. Now the biggest films, um, there's the Fast and the Furious, of course, but some of the bigger films aren't what we would call actioners. The Star Wars pictures, the space opera, mm. Harry Potter's... What, what is Harry Potter? Kind of a, an action adventure? Yes, yeah, I would say fantasy, but I don't suppose that's accurate yeah. either, really, is it? I suppose action adventure, yeah, it's there. I'd like to see Cameron return. I don't know when How many we'll... times do I have to tell you, Fletch? 2020, Avatar 2. <laughs> okay? Yeah, and that's right. And Avatar 3 the following year, I'm sure. And it'll be just like the Star Wars releases, one every Christmas with um, uh, a May release for the spin-offs. 2024 and 2025, Avatar 4 <laughs> and Avatar 5. I hope you've enjoyed what we've said about Titanic and please do join the conversation with us on both As Good As It Gets and Titanic. And you know what? Try and chip in on the first one, because I don't suppose many of our listeners have even seen it. It would be nice to see what people think about As Good As It Gets coming at it afresh. I hope that I haven't prejudiced it too much. I do find the cinematography cramped and the editing way off. But please, see how you find it. And check back to some of the other James L. Brooks pictures, because broadcast news is really good. And please, Titanic as well. I think if you're to approach it, with eyes afresh just consider it as a james cameron film and see how it functions within that not as a love story not as teen heartthrob leonardo dicaprio and england's rose kate winslet but see how it fits in the filmography of james cameron and the beats that it hits and how it functions so excellently just like aliens as an action film that escalates and escalates Mm. because that's one of the beautiful things about aliens yeah Uh, 2020 fletch all i'm saying Avatar (laughs) 2. 
Yeah, I can't. Pre- he I, asked me to go back to Titanic. I can't bring myself to go back to Avatar. <laughs> I, can't, I can't put that in the DVD player. Terminator 2, he made the biggest film of all time and it was one of the best action pictures of all time. Uh, Los Angeles has never looked better at night, even in Michael Mann mm. films. Oh, that blue. True Lies. That blue. Exactly, you know exactly yeah. what I mean. Yeah, we'll focus on that another time. And then in True Lies, he once again made the biggest film of all time and it took colossal box office and it is a good film. Then Titanic... Uh, Cameron's Folly no one thought that that could be a success exactly yeah exactly off the back of Waterworld for instance and comparisons with that once again made the most expensive film of all time made the biggest film of all time then Avatar it's not even that good Mm. and it's still the biggest grossing film ever made I do think that Avatar had fake hype uh, I think everyone in Hollywood, because this, you must remember, this was off the back of headlines about box office receipts slumping and the cinema is dead and rise of Netflix, whatever. And they had to get people back into the cinemas and it was the 3D thing. And Cameron was making this film that was designed to be seen in 3D and you had to see it in 3D. This was going to be the future of cinema. Yeah. There was so much fake hype. I think everyone, exhibitors, uh, cinemas, you know, and uh, studios, the the movie press, who of course rely on people going to see films. It's um, I think everyone kind of clubbed together, whether unconsciously or not, and said, uh, "We got to make this happen, guys. 3D has to be the biggest thing ever." I remember at the time, a promotion called Avatar Day. An advanced preview of about twelve minutes of footage. I even had a ticket. I ended up not going because I. I realised closer to the time that it was stupid. That it was just a, well, yeah, it was just an, it was an extended trailer. But that's and I suppose that's how they they build the hype around it because it's so expensive and it can't afford to yeah. fail. So do get yep. in touch, guys. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time to listen uh, listen to our, our rantings on this edition of the Electronic Labyrinth. It was really good to get into uh, a couple of films in a bit more depth, actually, Fletch. But do let us know. Do get in touch. Uh, as good as it gets, or as good as it gets, question mark, in in, <laughs> in Fletch's, <laughs> Fletch's point of view. As good as it gets. And Titanic, were you duped like me into thinking uh, it was some action film as a little kid, uh, only to see it was it was a chick flick? But what do you think of it? What do you think of the screenplay? What do you think of it? What does, what does the film mean to you? Thanks very much indeed for listening and get in touch at onesensationalshot.com. You can fill out the form there on the Contact Us link. There's uh, at onesensational on Twitter. You can tweet us there. On Facebook, we are One Sensational Shot. You can find us on Facebook too. Like us, follow us. Uh, but of course, the most important thing is if you could leave us a wonderful review on iTunes or Stitcher or your podcast app of choice. Leave us a review, five stars preferably, and uh, just let us know what you thought. That can help other people to discover the podcast. Do tell your friends and uh, look forward to speaking to you all very, very soon. But in the meantime, this is Luke the Boy and Fletcher Walton signing off. My heart is full to bursting, except to say, I'm the king of the world! <laughs>